0: From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we speak with public theologian Dr. Jermaine McDonald. And after that, Dr. Onaje Exo-Woodbond joins us to discuss his book, Black Gods of the Asphalt, Religion, Hip-Hop, and Street Basketball. That's coming up on the public morality. Welcome to the public morality. Public theology is loosely defined as the intersection of religion and public discourse. It plays itself out in myriad ways. My guest today, Dr. Jermaine McDonald has demonstrated his willingness to grapple with the complexities of public theology as it relates to the human condition. And in doing so, he is quickly becoming one of the leading young public theologians in the country. Dr. McDonald, welcome to The Public Morality.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: So let's begin. You you self-identify as a public theologian, so my first question to you is, what is public theology, in your view?
1: So for me, public theology is the way in which uh, well, my particular uh, background, the way in which uh, religious people, Christians in particular, but not necessarily exclusively so, uh, bring their faith to bear in public life, in public forms, in public square, and in public uh, policy. So, uh, for instance, um, one way in which, uh, a recent way, matter of fact, in which Christians have kind of brought their moral values to bear in the public realm would be in the discussion about um, Obamacare or universal health care. So... Uh, Raphael Warnock, for instance, uh, preached a sermon um, really talking about uh, embracing the need for uh, universal health care and really encouraging and supporting uh, President Obama's uh, Obamacare uh, bill uh, when it was going before Congress and being voted on. So that's kind of an example of public theology kind of on the political realm. But there's also public theology in terms of how um, churches and religious communities bring their values to bear, not just in politics but in uh, matters of public policy, uh, matters of social outreach, and things of that nature. So, for instance, um, you have Catholic Charities who do a lot of work um, supporting uh, uh, impoverished people. Um, And you also have on the other side of the spectrum, um, evangelical ministries, you know, Uh, doing social justice work in relation to their beliefs about abortion and also kind of, you know, supporting um, women who have had abortions kind of attending to that kind of post-abortion narrative.
0: Now, now when you say theology, are you differentiating that uh, from what is commonly viewed as religion? And if so, what are the differences, in your view?
1: Uh, um, In my view, so I take a more broad view of theology, um, so it's not necessarily... Um, 100% God talk, um, but what we're talking about is really um, attending to a specific set of values and your interpretation of them um, and bringing them to bear uh, both in your life and in the life um, in, in broader general public. Uh, so it's not necessarily we're doing this because God said so, um, but you can say my faith implores me to do these things and here are the social benefits of having of putting these values into practice, so it's kind of a twofold thing. So it's theology in that it's, it's there's some God language or morality talk, but it's public because it is not exclusively so. And and at least for me, it, it is very important that uh, when one is speaking um, theologically in public, that there also has to be kind of a. I guess what I would call kind of a secular framework or a secular basis to it. So it has to be rooted in some type of social analysis, some type of scientific uh, basis, in fact, or else you're just um putting a, a, a religious belief without, um, without any other justification. And so, I don't think you can do that in today's
0: society. So, so in your view, then public theology is is more than just a an individual aligning, aligning with a particular orthodoxy, then espousing you know that orthodoxy to the public discourse as as a means to persuade uh, one to their point of view. It, so it's more than that, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. It, it, it's more than that because I mean, because we live in a pluralistic society, we have to engage and talk with one another. So. If if you come into the public forum thinking, I'm 100% absolutely right, um, and I'm not going to work with you, I'm not going to listen to you, I'm not going to speak with you, I'm not going to engage with you, to me you're not actually doing theology, because theology is very contextual, so it's very, uh, um, at its core, it's kind of interpreting the time through a particular religious lens. Um, So in order to be able to do that, you have to be able to engage with all people who are kind of in this thing with you together.
0: Well, just based on on that particular answer, it, it sounds to me that you're saying that that I guess maybe part of the tension, if you will, unlike other orthodoxies, there's a role for theology, at least from what I'm hearing you say, is to to also invoke just a little restraint and sort of pull back on what is normally was common in the discourse of certainty.
1: Yes, yes, you you definitely have to pull back on the certainty, and um, it's not that you don't have confidence in your beliefs or confidence in in, in your faith, but it's the recognition or The recognition that that you don't have all the answers, right, that there's room for growth, that there's room for negotiation, that there's room for compromise, Uh, that's vital to a democracy. Um, And if we're going to be a public public theologian in a democracy, then you have to come in with with the air of humility, with the air of of willingness to, to learn and engage. And who knows, that contact with the public might impact or influence your theology. So... Too many times we think of public theology as theologians our theological claims to the public and changing the public. But I mean, a clear example of the reverse is what's going on in many of our uh, mainline denominations now. Uh, particularly, just yesterday with the um, uh, United Methodist General Conference, you have uh, discussion of the LGBTQI question, and then in the middle of the conference, you have this disruption of a Black Lives Matters protest. This is the public engaging the theologian, so to speak, and saying you need to come to grips with the reality that's going on right now in our society. And we need you to come to grips with it and help us to move us towards uh, being more um, social justice acclimated. Well,
0: let me ask you, as a public theologian, let me ask you, what what are your feelings about the nation's accepted adoration for Martin Luther King?
1: Uh, So as a public theologian, (laughs) that is a very good question. Um, So... Uh, there was a Gallup poll. Uh, they issued a poll in 1966 um, in which they determined that uh, Martin Luther King had a, I think it was like a 63 or 66 percent unfavorable rating. This was in 1966. Fast forward to uh, 2011 when the National Monument was going up for uh, Dr. King, being dedicated to Dr. King, and all of a sudden he has a 94 percent approval rating. So there's this sense. So what what accounts for this sea change of In 1966, 63% of Americans are like, "Nah, we don't like him."
0: Well, and now, but by the way, that poll also was hitting that trajectory immediately after he was killed in Memphis in '68. It started taking off. Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So there is a sense that, um, at least for me, that Dr. King, there's this—I will call it this—public consultation of of Dr. King's legacy, in which you have uh, some who want to just stay in kind of the colorblind. the colorful language of one aspect of the dream speech, um, while you have others kind of trying to uh, broaden that perspective to say, to remind us of the things that Dr. King was doing both later in his life and really throughout his entire ministry um, to broaden this perspective of looking at racial issues, of looking at militarism, and looking at excessive consumerism or or capitalism gone gone astray. Uh, So in, in one respect, I think it's great that we so adore... Martin Luther King. But on the other hand, I think that the adoration has caused us to kind of lose a bit in a lot of his message that he was trying to get out, particularly towards the end of his life, but not exclusively so, because he was talking about race and poverty and militarism and all those things even before kind of the sea change uh, after the dream. I mean, if you look at his his, uh, Nobel Peace Prize speech, he's laying the foundation for, for that trajectory even then, and that's in 1963 in the midst of the Birmingham campaign. Uh,
0: I, I've argued that for all intensive purposes, in many ways, the actual death of Martin King was August 28th, 1963. And, and that, of course, being um, when he gave the keynote address at the March on Washington. Just To just give you my bias, I refuse to call it I Have a Dream because that was never the name of the speech. Um, right, right. But because we do that with King— which means in our celebration, there's little time to discuss poverty and or Vietnam, which were obviously central to King's Project post-Selma. I, mean, I just want to know what your thoughts on that through that lens of a public theologian.
1: Well, I think part of the reason that we can't discuss um, Vietnam and poverty is because we're, we're, we're still very fractured on those two issues, right? I mean, Vietnam is still um, a matter of public debate about whether or not it was justified or whether or not if we had stayed longer, we could have won, et cetera, et cetera. And poverty is still, still one of those issues where we're very much divided, where you have the sense on one hand that um, that if people just work harder, then they wouldn't be poor anymore. On the other hand, you have the sense that um, there are just so many structures and layers to poverty that to just lay at the feet of, of, of individual responsibility is, is socially reckless. So it's hard to even engage Martin Luther King, when there's such division um, in the United States about these particular issues that he was very much on one particular side of, so uh, and because the the work of rec- racial reconciliation, which we want to believe that we, you know, obtain, uh, which is highly debatable if not false, is is so striking that we want to just we want to rest, we want to we want to stay in that particular paradigm because it makes us feel that it makes us feel that America has has. At least in part, become the nation that we always thought or always dreamt that it could be. So, if you look at like um, President Reagan's address at the, um, King, uh, at the um, dedication of the King Holiday, um, he literally stops at 1963, and doesn't engage King any further, and declares that King has brought us into this um, era that, that that King has um, uh, freed the conscience of, uh, or stirred the conscience of um, of America's folk towards racial justice, right? So, and this is at the same time where, you know, President Reagan had this long history of opposing everything that Martin Luther King ever did and even saying such a sly remark as, well, um, talking about the FBI recordings that hadn't been released yet. Well, history will say whether or not this was a good thing or not, right? Just talking, very, um, talking a lot of bad things about Martin Luther King, but at the same time kind of flipping the script and really... That his speech is what I think kind of cemented kind of this this view of Dr. King as only this kind of racial reconciler and not really being able allowing us to really dive deeply into the poverty and the militarism aspects of his uh, public ministry.
0: Well, well, funny you would you would mention those things because um, if for King circa 1967-68 the triple evils as you just alluded to were racism, poverty, and militarism. What might you say are the moral challenges facing America in the 21st century?
1: So I would broaden the racism bit to mm-hmm. just discrimination in general mm-hmm. um, and and that's not to say that would necessarily support LGBTQI rights. No, I'm asking you, though. I don't, no, oh, I, 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 I don't
0: like the what would Martin say today. I don't okay, like those right, types right. of questions because you don't day, know what day, Martin day. would say today. So you go. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. <laughs> I totally agree. So um, I would broaden that out, discrimination in general, of course. Um, gay rights, gay marriage, of course, that's when uh, gay marriage has become... Uh, legal in all 50 states thanks to uh, the court system and I think to, ironically I would even say to President Obama's leadership um, but now you're having transgender rights um, that are in the forefront um, you're having the rights of immigrants of undocumented immigrants of Muslims and other religious uh, authorities who are not Christian uh, being challenged or brought to the forefront um, you also have uh, poverty, uh, dealing with wall street uh dealing with um dealing with Austria, dealing with corporatism uh trying to uh re middle class which is the kind of political way of putting it uh but it's interesting that politicians are really able more able to talk about middle class than they are to talk about poverty and i think king would not have uh, well again going back to not saying what king or what would or would not have done, but given our, what we know of King, the focus on middle class as opposed to poverty is something that he probably would have eschewed, right? He probably mm-hmm. would have said that, that we need to focus more on, on um, those who are the most without, even while building up our middle class. And then looking at militarism, so we still think that even despite Iraq, even despite Afghanistan, even despite uh, uh, Libya, we still think that we can arm ourselves and fight our we can arm ourselves and use our military might to impose our values. In the world. And if if Iraq and Afghanistan has not taught us that we can't do that, then I don't know what will teach us that we can't do that.
0: Well, you know, when you when you said um, and and uh, and, I, and I appreciate your your, your hesitancy to, to try to talk for King, but but I think you're right. And what we do know about him is that um, we know that um, the text does not say those who are missing a few things, but it's real clear in saying the least of these. So that that sort of uh, Gets past just using middle class lingo. I'm going to go go back to poverty for just a moment, you know. And I have, and this has been my observation. So feel free to uh, correct me because I'm I'm always being corrected. So it wouldn't be the first time. Um, But poverty is an issue that is moment is it invariably raised in light of something else. And for example, you know, poverty came up after Ferguson exploded. Poverty came up after Baltimore exploded. It had a role in Occupy, but, a, but a, a subsidiary role. But there are there a are few issues in America where poverty does not play a, a, a role. So why is it that as an issue that's so prevalent um, in our in our community that it's uh, pretty much been rendered to adjunct status in the discourse?
1: Well, I think part of it is this um, fundamental belief that everyone has opportunity in this country. Um, so the belief in the American dream and the belief in the bootstraps mentality doesn't allow us to, to see poverty. Or we assume that poverty should be and ought to be temporary for everyone because everyone has a chance. Um, but I think it also points out the fact that it's, it's very intersectional. So it's really interesting that poverty intersects all of these issues from mass incarceration to, um, to, to Wall Street abuses, to, to militarism and sending our, our young men and women to, to war—that poverty intersects all of these. Things. You
0: even take the quality, quality food.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, or oh, food deserts things of that nature. That all—that that poverty pervades is probably the underlying, kind of um, underlying thing that kind of undergirds all of these issues that we're talking about. Um, but it's easy to talk about them, about all these other subsidiary issues in poverty itself, because. Like I said, the, the American ethos is that um, that no one should be poverty or should stay in poverty long because everyone has opportunity. And if we're able to deconstruct that particular myth and really understand how, how pervasive and how difficult it is to actually get out of poverty, how difficult it is to sustain your life when you're living in poverty. Um, and how privileged it is that if you're not in poverty, if you're not in poverty, how, how many advantages you have that, you, that, that that you just take for granted? if um, we're really able to dig down and uncover some of those things, and perhaps we can have a wide-ranging conversation about what it means to be in poverty and the things that that um, we need to do to take care of it. I'm I'm, I'm of the mindset that we need a, a serious, a much stronger social safety net so that there isn't a level that people can fall below, um, and that's really that be the only redemptive thing, uh, that would be the only thing that could really save uh, capitalism in the United States, in my opinion.
0: Well, do, Dr. McDonald, let me just push back just a little bit, because you and I know that you can't get to 270 electoral votes talking about poverty.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's absolutely true, uh, which is unfortunate. Um, and I'm not quite sure exactly what to do with that, except uh except to, to continue building coalitions that talk about um, that that will continue to engage poverty. So building coalitions with working class folks, uh, particularly uh, between African-Americans, Hispanics and working class whites, um, to talk about labor issues, to talk about um, minimum wage issues and things of that nature will help kind of bring this to the forefront. And then paying attention to midterm elections, I think, is is, is key. So what happens is we pay attention to the public to the presidential cycle, and then midterm elections come around, and we have a significant drop off in the amount of people who are voting. So we don't realize that the midterm elections; those are what those midterm elections are building the careers of our future politicians. Right. So if we're not if we're not undergirding if we're not building um, politicians who are attuned to poverty in these ways that are important, uh, then by the time we get to gubernatorial cycles, the presidential cycles, the senatorial cycles. We're going to have people in place who have not spent their careers even thinking about poverty, so how are they going to address it um, in the national forum?
0: And, and finally, before we let you go, um, going back to the lens of public theology, um, what are your thoughts on uh, Black Lives Matter?
1: So Black Lives Matter is an incredibly important um, Moving into the society, and what I find really, really interesting is, is the ways in which it uses a public morality um, that doesn't um, get rid of, of the influence of black religion and black church, but it doesn't kowtow to it either. So you have this organization that's started by three queer women, who's um, dedicated to all lives and all black lives matter, queer lives, transgender black lives, poor black lives, rich black lives, et cetera, et cetera. Um, who aren't explicitly religious, but have invited uh, religiously-minded black social progressives to be a part of this movement um, and to build coalitions within, within religious organizations and religious bodies. Um, one thing that I do find terribly um, difficult, not with the movement of itself, but it's the ways in which the language of Black Lives Matter has been co-opted by those who would not necessarily embrace all black lives mattering, right? So you have some folks, and I'll I'll allow them to be nameless, but um, I'll let your audience kind of connect with that. Fill
0: in the blanks, yes. They're they're, they're good (laughs) at that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Who are shouting Black Lives Matter, but at the same time are are equally opposed to kind of transgender rights or um, gay marriage or LGBTQI rights. And so that is is actually a a stark contradiction to the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And for me, I almost want to say that they shouldn't even have Black Lives Matter and they shouldn't even have the name, they should not even be speaking the name out because they're not attuned to the full range of values that the, that the movement is, um, that the movement has chosen to, to undertake and to, to abide by. But the other thing I like about Black Lives Matter is, is, is this sense of it is going to be disruptive. So, you know, uh, after the riots and after Black Lives Matter got, um, got going, a lot of the public discourse was using Martin Luther King, ironically, to, to chastise these movements they saying that you're not doing it right, that you're not doing it peacefully, uh, that you're not organized, that you don't have this, you don't have that, you don't have a leader. And they're actually saying, well, we have lots of leaders kind of in the Ella Baker mode. And um, they spent this time kind of reclaiming the kind of radicalism of Dr. King. And Dr. King said that uh, true peace is not the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice, right? Mm-hmm. So in his whole, if you look at Dr. King's actions, they were subversive, they were... Um, they were challenging, and, and they would go out. He would. They would go out and be disruptive, and that's what Black Lives Matter is doing. So to me, they're actually operating within a paradigm that fits well with what Dr. King is doing, as far as their social actions, as far as getting, in, as far as disrupting our normal lives, our normal procedures, our normal events, um, making things uncomfortable to highlight the injustice that we need to, to address, and I think that's a beautiful thing, and I totally commend them I my wisdom well, and I hope that they keep this momentum going uh, much further uh, in, uh, in the future.
0: Dr. Jermaine McDonnell, public theologian, I want to thank you for sharing with us today on The Public Morality. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That was Dr. Jermaine McDonald. Coming up, my conversation with Dr. Onaje X.O. Woodbine, author of Black Gods of the Asphalt. do religion, hip-hop, and street basketball have in common? That is the central question posed and answered persuasively by my next guest, Dr. Anaje X.O. Woodbine, in his book, Black Gods of the Asphalt, Religion, Hip-Hop, and Street Basketball. Dr. Woodbine teaches philosophy and religious studies at Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. Dr. Anaje Woodbine, welcome to The Public Morality.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Let's start with the, the introduction of your book because you begin by sharing why you decided to leave the Yale basketball team. Talk about that, if you will.
2: Okay, yes. Yeah. So, you know, I was a sophomore at Yale University and I, you know, was the leading scorer on the basketball team. I had dreams of making the NBA, but at the same time, you know, the Yale locker room had a culture of misogyny. Uh, you know, many of my teammates were... Interested in sexual conquests. Um, there was racial tension as well um, in the locker room. You know, many of my teammates were part of a fraternity um, that was, you know, basically all white. And, you know, the black players, you know, weren't a part of that. There were very few of us. And it was also run like a business. You know, the, you know, practice was very businesslike. Coaches really didn't build, build relationships with players. And it was so different from, you know, my inner city experience with basketball where coaches were like father figures. And really, you know, the, the word coach was sacred in, in the inner city. So all of that that contrast really caused me to question what I was really doing on the basketball court. So
0: would you say, what would you say, rather, is the intersection um, of that experience? specific experience you just talked about at Yale University and the overarching thesis of your current offering, Black Gods of the Asphalt, Religion, Hip-Hop, and Street Basketball.
2: Well, the thesis of the book is that black men are pushed by poverty and racism to play basketball in predominant numbers, and they're also pulled by white institutions who want to profit from their labor to play basketball. But on the other hand, when they get on to the basketball court and they move their bodies um, in fellowship with other young men, they have access to a mode of resistance to the larger culture. Right? So it's a, it's a real paradox. On the one hand, basketball is exploitative, and on the other hand, the actual experience, the lived experience of being on the court gives them access to their, their humanity.
0: You know, when you, when you just reference bodies, I, I couldn't help but think of uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, uh, Against the World and Me, because he, he references the body in so many aspects of that work. And, and I, even when I read your text, I, I felt you doing the same thing, not quite the same way, but actually uh, in your text, I mean, the body uh, is not so much that was being abused, but, some, but serves as a sort of a tool for at least limited liberation.
2: Well, certainly. You know, so many of these young men carry around uh, the legacy of slavery in their bodies. You know, I talk about in the book the body as almost like an archive of the social world. Right? It, it You know, it carries the memory, this history of slavery, of racism, of, of gender issues. Um, but at the same time, I do think that there's something about moving and movement itself that allows one to escape the assumptions that we carry around with us in the streets, especially young black men. And getting back into your body sort of gives you this felt sense of who you are and your humanity. So the body really is a very important tool for liberation in the book.
0: So forgive me in advance for embracing an overused idiom, Uh, one can't judge a book by its cover, but I would imagine (laughs) to many that religion— hip-hop and street basketball taken together would appear to be a non-sequitur. But I'm guessing, based on this text, you would disagree with that statement.
2: Of course. Um, you know, as a young man growing up in the inner city, um, I didn't have access to the church. Right? I didn't have access to tra- those traditional buffers against, um, you know, racism and white supremacy. But what I did have was the basketball court, I remember when my father figure, my coach, passed away. I went to him, and I went to, his, to the basketball court to really find his spirit. All of the tournaments in Roxbury where I grew up are named after ancestors, and all of the ritual work of grief that you normally find in religion happens right there on the basketball court. So for me, it was very easy to make that connection
0: talking with Dr. Anajay Woodbine, author of Black Gods of the Asphalt. And since you just talked about having grown up in in Roxbury, um, I'm I'm curious. Was there a difference between the Roxbury that you left when you headed to Yale uh, and the Roxbury that uh, you experienced when you were writing your text?
2: Well, sure. One of the major differences was that I really didn't know you know, many of the gang members who sort of stand around the court and run the basketball courts. And so I really needed uh, an informant, somebody who could enter that space and really protect me or at least vouch for me as, as a known player. And um, so that, that was very difficult, it's sort of how do I enter this space um And get to know the young man and at the same time protect myself from violence-
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know now, under that backdrop, what you just what you just outlined, uh talk about the multiple dimensions that basketball represents in say in Roxbury today.
2: Sure, you know, so you have really three dimensions um uh, within the community that sort of exist around the basketball court. Um, There are the gang members and the hustlers, the gamblers who sort of are around this space, and, you know, they really run the court, Um, and they often, you know, will stand on the outside in case the police come into the space. They can sort of escape, and then you have the middle sort of dimension, which are people selling things and, um, you know, women and other folks who are just observing the game. And then at the center court are the elders. And these are the, the older men and women who are there to provide witness to what is happening in this space. And so the stakes are really high, right? As a young man, if you don't play well on the court, the gang members see that, the women see that, the elders see that, and so you 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 know, you may end up losing your identity as a ball player. And then you have to choose another one, which is usually either a gang member or, you know, a, a musician, a rapper. Mm-hmm. You,
0: you know, I have long um, believed that if you ask anyone playing in the NBA, including the great stars, if you just talk to them long enough, they will tell you about someone that most of us never heard of, but they were incomplete all of their skills. Now, in, in, in reading your book, it sounds like Roxbury had a plethora of such players. It, it, any of those you care to talk about?
2: Sure. Yeah. You know, one of the first young men that I that I interviewed, I actually had watched him play when I was 15 years old, and he was like a god. You know, he had such an uncanny game. He he would spin. He would hold the ball up high over his head while he spinned and he could just contort his body in ways that were just unimaginable. And everyone thought he would be in the NBA. Hmm. I mean, you know, he was basically worshipped. Um, And, you know, I hadn't seen him for over 15 years. And one day I went on to the basketball court as I was writing the book, and I saw him. And, you know, he still carried himself with the swagger of a ball player, but there was something missing, you know. And I later discovered he had been in jail all those years. And uh, he told me, he said, prison just took took his humanity away just took something from him and he had just got out of prison and he was there to remember his cousin and his grandmother who had passed away while he was in jail he said you know i couldn't go to their funerals so i was going to remember them for through, through my jump shot
0: which which goes back to the religion piece that you talked about in your own experience
2: definitely you know um you know ritual is such an important tool for human beings to sort of get some sort of transcendent perspective on their own experience, you know. And, you know, if you don't have the church, you don't have traditional forms of therapy, right? You have to find other ways, right, to rework some of the difficulties in your life. And, you know, it just so happens that for many in the inner city, the basketball court, you know, plays that role.
0: And I, I want to read um it was a small it was a subtle sentence, but I gonna I want to uh, from Chapter 3, but I want to read it because it really jumped out at me. The first sentence of Chapter 3, which is entitled Jason Hoops in Grandma's Hand, you write, For Jason, basketball is hope. Whenever he touches the ball, something like the will to live is pulled out of him and put on sparkling display. Now, without a context, that could appear to be the rather strong statement, and I guess in some respects a, a tragic one, depending on one's perspective. But talk to me about the interplay between And Jason, I'm using Jason because you use Jason, but it could be anyone. Jason, basketball, and hope.
2: Yeah, so, you know, Jason, um, his, his mother's a drug addict. She still is. And his grandmother, she was the person who let him know he was a human being. And she passed away when he was four years old. And, you know, he would leave his mother's house to the basketball court after she abused him and he would look for his grandmother. He, he said, you know, the ball, the hoop represented my grandmother. And when I saw him on the court as, a, you know, a younger man, um, he would play ball, and I, I noticed, you know, the the passion. I, I couldn't really put my finger on it, but I noticed he was playing with this uncanny sense of passion and, and love. And I went up to him, I said, you know, well, my name is Onage, know, I really like the way you play. Can you tell me your story? And he began to tell me that his grandmother gave him the hope to go on. She was the one that whenever he got down, whenever he felt like he couldn't live anymore, you know, he was almost raped, actually, in the foster home. He'd been through so much that he would go to the court, and her memory really gave him, gave him the hope to, to live. So, you know, he also was another young man that, that really stood out to me.
0: Where is he now?
2: He is actually um, going into the ministry. You know, he met a woman who also she thinks of herself as a prophet. Her name is Dora. I talk about her in the book as well, and she became a mentor of his. You know, Dora grew up in the project. She's 58 years old. And one day she came into contact with with Jason. And she asked Jason, do you want to play basketball professionally? You know, and he he had never said anything to her about basketball. They didn't know each each other. And so she sort of read him from a spiritual perspective. And it it completely, you know, uh, astounded him that that there's somebody in the projects that could be in touch with, with spirit in that way. And, um, you know, she told him, you're going to play ball, but you're going to do it through ministry. You're going to do it through the church. And Jason has sort of followed her direction and is now in school um, attempting to become a minister.
0: You know, in some ways, I I felt the way you were describing street basketball is almost like I can almost see a cocoon that momentarily just insulates participants from the absurdity that gulfs them in every other area of their life. Is that is that a fair statement or am, am I reading too much
2: into you? Definitely. You know, the the gateway from the streets to the court does represent this sort of refuge, right? When you step onto the court for a moment you're able to place in abeyance to set aside all of the difficulties in the streets. And you know, the music, the fellowship, all of those things create an opportunity. For you to express yourself and rework those difficulties, and so, in many ways, it is a refuge. Some of the young men said, this is the only place where I feel safe. This is the only place where I feel love. All right, this is the only place where I feel like a human being. as soon as I step you know off the court and into the streets again, I have to wear the mask of you know black masculinity
0: and and that sounds i mean, we could have taken that. Uh example you just provided, that illustration, and could we not, uh, if not today, I mean, to some degree today, but especially in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, does that not sound like the black experience and the importance of the black church and that, so that lived religion that you talk, you reference in your book?
2: Certainly, certainly, you know, the church has always been that space where you can know you're a human being. Right. And, you know, blues music function function that way as well. Right. On Saturday nights, folks wouldn't know they were human beings, you know, through music. And so you really do have, have a confluence of the sort of black culture, you know, on the basketball court. And, uh, you know, interesting connection to the, to the black church in the sense that the game is all about storytelling. You know, and the black church, you get up and you testify about what happened to you during the week. And you would give it to God, you know, and in many cases, these young men use their bodies as a kind of vocabulary, a sacred vocabulary, in which they share their stories with the community, you know. So one of the things I do in the book is look at the movement of these bodies as almost like a living text, right? It gives the community a way to read itself symbolically and to understand itself better in many ways, that that, that the church, the, the way
0: that the black church functions. You, you know, you briefly just mentioned um, blues, and I know in the book you, you, that you 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 referenced that um, how blues could turn grief into ecstasy. I think is the words you used, yeah. and yes. and 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 then which got me to start thinking about just you know like the saxophone player who the jazz saxophone player who he riffs in such a way that he may do that again, similar, but it's like those momentary things that never repeat themselves. And, and I'm seeing you illustrate basketball in that same light, that artistry.
2: Oh, man. There are moments on the court that, like, as you say, you know, will never happen the same way again. You know, I, I, in the book I talk about one tournament where this this young man, I mean, he jumped from basically the free throw line and – He jumped so high, it was like he just paused in midair, and everyone paused with him. It was just a huge gasp throughout the crowd, and he just seemed to keep going up. And he he actually he never actually touched the rim, but it was the best play of the whole tournament. People couldn't stop talking about it, and I think because it, it did create this this sense of possibility you know, transcendent, and that, you know, anything is, is is really possible. And it was also a shared experience. I mean, it felt at that moment that all of us belong like, to, to the same community. So, yes, there, there are certainly moments where people riff, where they improvise in ways that, you know, just boggle the imagination.
0: Dr. Anajay Woodbine, author of Black Gods on the Asphalt, I want to thank you uh, for being on the public rally today, sir.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was a joy.
0: That was Dr. Anaje Woodbine. Coming up, my closing remarks. for my closing remarks. Mr. Clarence Henderson recently wrote a guest commentary in the Charlotte Observer suggesting it was offensive to compare the civil rights movement to the LGBT movement today. Mr. Henderson made clear that he participated in the gallant effort in Greensboro, North Carolina to the segregated lunch counters in 1960 while as a student at North Carolina A&T. I applaud Mr. Henderson for his courage, but does that grant him credibility to serve as the official grill? for a movement that changed the narrative for American democracy? Henderson's piece was in response to Attorney General Loretta Lynch, who compared North Carolina's controversial HB2 to Jim Crow segregation. Henderson opined, During the Jim Crow era, we stared down the nozzle of fire hoses, felt the piercing bite of police dogs dangle from trees after being strung up by an angry mob, all because of the color of our skin, suggesting that the LGBT community has not endured such torture and therefore does not have the credibility to make such comparisons. Linear historical comparisons are invariably flawed. Not only is there not a linear comparison to the civil rights movement and the current LGBT efforts, the historical struggle of African Americans cannot be compared with the systematic annihilation of Native Americans. But in a macro context, there is commonality of struggle and dehumanization. Are we to take slender solace by engaging in oppression poker? I see your Jim Crow and raise you Japanese internment camps. I see your Japanese internment camps and raise you Trail of Tears. Are not these episodes as well as others reflective of dark chapters in American history? What does it matter if the dark corner that one stands appears slightly brighter to others when all inhabit the same suffocating domicile of bigotry? Henderson's polemic also begs the question, what are civil rights? Are they exclusively black rights, or are they rights guaranteed to every citizen in a free society? The myopic terrain that Henderson stands blinds him to the humanity of LGBT brothers and sisters. He cannot see Harvey Milk. He cannot see Matthew Shepard. He cannot see Audre Lord. Ironically, he cannot see Bayard Rustin. Without Rustin, who lived openly gay at a time such things were not done, the March on Washington may not have been the epic moment in history that we remember. But underlining Henderson's dissent is the tragic fallacy that the LGBT community is advocating for special rights or the so-called gay agenda, which sounds remotely like the Red Scare. The gay agenda, in my view, is the audacious expectation that the nation would make good on the promises made to all citizens. Period. Was that not the ethos of the civil rights movement? That movement did not simply improve conditions for black people, it made the nation better. This is why subsequent movements globally cited as inspiration for their efforts. No group can co-opt the legacies of Ella Baker, Diane Nash, Fannie Lou Hamer, Jack O'Dell, Goodwin, Cheney, and Schwerner, the Greensboro Four, and countless others whose valiant efforts are known only to antiquity, who put their lives on the line for freedom's cause. If one understands the movement beyond the straitjacket of their personal agenda, it becomes easier to see the LGBT community is simply digging from the same wells of equality that quenched the thirst of others who went before them. For that is how we get to that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcast, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.